Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. My guest tonight is Sanjeev Gandhi. He was a founder of Reach to Teach, a hugely successful NGO. Really good conversation with him. I think you'll enjoy. He talks about going back to his parents' homeland and making a real difference. Enjoy. Welcome Sanjeev Gandhi, who was the founder of Reach to Teach. Welcome, Sanjeev. Hi, Mark. It's very kind of you to, in, to invite me onto this. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be talking to you. Absolutely. And there's only 12,000 miles difference well, between us, isn't there? You're... Oh. <laughs> well, well, in particular, because you're going into the summer and, and we are now already in autumn, it feels like here. So I'd, uh, it, it's a pity you couldn't have flown me out for a personal one-to-one conversation. That, that would have been great. That would have been great. And a few weeks ago when we caught up pre-podcast uh, and, and sort of the making of this podcast, um, you talked about for you this year, which, you know, summer holiday time in the UK, and for you it was a staycation this year. How, how is um, the pandemic for you? How has it been for your family? How, how are you um, coping? I mean, you know, it, it, it's it, it, it's going to seem, you know, almost wrong to say tough because so many people have, have experienced things that are just beyond bearable during this time, haven't they? You know, um, you know, we we had you know, someone very close to me and my family pass away, and uh, you know, then I, I managed to get COVID, so did my my wife. But you know, we're through that, and actually, the staycation was was lovely because we. We isolated before we went. We got uh, we got COVID tested so that my wife's parents could join us uh, for a couple of weeks. And actually, we only went up to the Cotswolds, and it was lovely. The children had a fantastic time, and for them, just spending time with grandparents was brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, as far as they're concerned, they had a great holiday. If they've had a great holiday, I've had a great holiday. So, I think we, we had we had a really nice staycation. Really enjoyed it. That's great. And 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 what was when you got diagnosed with with COVID? And in terms of that, because my concern is the sort of some of the stigma attached to it, and also, you know, what was it like as an experience? Was it the illest you've been, or it, it wasn't, Mark? I mean, I guess I was one of the lucky ones. You know, I was breathless. I had a cough uh, for three or four days. The breathlessness was quite bad, but you know that faded quite quickly. And then, you know, my wife, who's from North Yorkshire and an ex-deputy head, would just sound lazy. I felt really tired for a couple of weeks afterwards. She, she just put it down to my innate and, and natural utter idleness. So it, it was just you know, feeling really tired, but breathless for a couple of weeks and, and really breathless for three or four days. It, it, you know, it wasn't worse than that. I got away really quite luckily, really luckily. Yeah. For, OK, well, that, that is really good. And um it'd be really good to, to jump into your reach and teach story, but to, to give our audience a bit of context, um, <clears throat> and I, I don't want to wrap you up as a corporate finance guy, but um, you know, the corporate sector is probably your comfort zone. Would that be fair to say? Would corporate finance guy be a fair title? Uh, do you know, Mark, I mean, I, I, I'd say probably not. I, I, in fact, if I look back, so I, I started off uh, just for a couple of years as a research physicist. So I like numbers. Um, but the whole world of research physics was was quite strange. Uh, there were a lot of very strange people uh, in that world, and quite quickly, I, you know, my, my dad had started up his own businesses, and I wanted to do something that was that was commercial. So I went and did corporate finance, 
and joined Coopers and Lybrand. And I've got to say, those were some of the best working years of my life. It, it was really collegiate. It was great fun, project-based. People worked together. I've still got a huge number of really great mates from those days. But I would say that, you know, in particular after leaving Yahoo and joining Marwin, I got used to doing my own thing. And um, I got used to independence. I got used to trying things, even if they weren't going to work. Um, and I think being in a corporate environment would be quite difficult for me now, really. I, although, you know, I'm doing a lot of non-execs, which I really enjoy. But oddly, you can, you can, you, you know, use the experience you've got of being independent in a non-exec role and bring that to corporates. But I'd say, yeah, the corporate world I left behind quite a long time ago, I think, really now. Mm. And I've spoken to a few people in my time around the, the transfer from corporate to, to charity or to NGO. And, and one in particular really sticks out, Sarah Bates, who was the non-exec chairman of SJP, talked about running a small independent charity was much much harder than anything else she'd done in life. Uh, so there is no fallback often. It is a very um, yeah. naked position, if you like. You and you and the trustees are really in deep, aren't you? I, I think so. You know, I think there's a, there's a number of things there. One, people are working for a charity, n- not because of the money. They're working there for other reasons. So the motivations of people and you know what they need from the organisation and what they need to deliver to the organisation is is different to a corporate. So you've got to think about ways in which you. You know, which, you, which your team it continues to be passionate about what you're doing, but still understands that it's got to deliver something. And it's got to deliver something that is, in the end, providing an impact, that is structured, that can be measured, and that you can grow. So uh, I think, you know, that, that's your first challenge. The second one is that when you, to me, you know, when I grew Reach to Teach, it grew through partnerships. Uh, and those partnerships were local NGOs in India, again, they've got really different motivations to why they are doing something. Their perceptions of you as well as, even though you know my heritage is Indian, coming to India, their perception of you uh, can be quite shocking, actually. And so you've got to understand how you're going to work with these partners, how you're going to understand them, how you're going to see things from their point of view, and how you're going to make that work on the ground. Mm. And that's the way you grow it and I think you end up taking lots of risks I mean by that I don't mean risking the organization I mean you know personal risk uh, risk in terms of trusting people uh, risk in terms of trying to bring trustees and other members of your team along with you so yeah I, I think I think in that sense it's it is much more exposed than being in a corporate um, and it's it's much more about relationships and how you develop them uh, and partnerships and how you develop them. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. No, absolutely. And so going back to that founder story in terms of your, you know, early days at Reach to Teach. So you were brought up um, in, in Britain and your parents are Indian, that's right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, they both came from the area where I started up the Reach to Teach operation. And that is um, the western part of India? Yeah, Gujarat, uh-huh. the state of Gujarat, yeah. and uh, in and around and near the, the, the sort of the province of Kutch, which is quite a 
a lot of desert. It's up near the border of Pakistan. Um, you know, amazing cities, amazing culture, uh, lots of people struggling, um, but a beautiful place. And I'm guessing you spent your childhood uh, going back there to visit family. Was that right? Would that be fair? I did. I mean, but, you know, when I think when you're going out as a, as a, as a child, a young teenager, then as a teenager, you, it's just an adventure. You know, you're, you're, you're traveling around with cousins that you haven't met before. It's massively exciting. Um, it, it was just massive fun. But one thing I never really, I saw it, but I didn't really understand it was, you know, the degree to which the number of people are, you know, struggling, uh, you know, suffering serious hardship. Uh, and and I, I didn't really, I think, see that until I left Yahoo. Mm. And what what did your family? You know, clearly you've you could have stayed in the corporate sector, and you and you chose a sort of for purpose life, and and put all your skills and 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 there are many you have many skills, but all into you know making a difference to people's lives. What what was it about growing up? You, you you're regularly visiting Western India. What were your parents saying to you? What did they kind of platform did they create for this at home? Do you remember those sort of yeah. lessons? I do. I mean, you know. Um... To some extent, you know, my mum and dad, I suppose, were, were typical Indian immigrant parents. It's uh, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer, be a professional. Um, make sure you get married to someone really good and, and have lots of children and, you know, have a great professional life. And for them, coming to this country as immigrants with very, very little, apart from a good education, what they wanted for me was stability. So for, for many years, I think they were really pleased that, you know, I'd... I'd you know, become a research engineer, I then gone to Coops and Librand, I then gone to the BBC. Um, but I think when that started to change was when I joined Yahoo, um, my mum and dad, my dad in particular, started to fund a couple of rural charities up in Gujarat that were building wells. And he used to send me photographs of what they were doing. And you know, how, how much life could be a struggle there. Mm. I think Yahoo was, it, it was a brutal environment, really, for three years. I mean, it was it was really formative for me. I learned huge amounts. I made friends that I'll keep for life. And, you know, I think it's testament to the people there that it, even to this day, I may not have spoken to someone for 15 years and I could call them and say, oh, actually, I'm going to be in France. Have you got any advice? I know I haven't spoken to you for 15 years. And they'd say, come and stay. Really? Surgery, 15 yeah. years. Why well, haven't you been in touch? Is that because Actually, it was high octane? Is that because it was yeah. so intense? Yeah, and it, yeah, and it created relationships and friendships that literally have so far lasted a lifetime for me. But it was it was quite a brutal environment. You know, it was it was the beginning of internet. Um, uh, it was massively competitive. Um, it was a hugely uncertain time, and, and coming out of it, I was I, I was tired. I was trying to think. What do I do next? And I, I think that, you know, I, I had been lucky with on the share option side. So it gave me some flexibility. And I, I went to India just to see family. I think that was the first time when I was going past a building site and I saw two little boys. And I don't know. I, I know now they're probably in their early teens, but they looked like they were five, six, seven, eight years old, working on a building site. I think that was the first time I thought, do I need to just rethink what I'm doing a bit? Can I do something 
for someone else. It's, it all sounds a bit cliched, doesn't it? But I think that was the beginning of it, and it really. And that was 2002, and was it? That was 2002, yeah. yeah. Um, that, I mean, at the same time, I'd, I'd gone into a partnership to start up an investment fund or work in an investment fund called Marwin. And uh, that originally was run by a guy called Mark Watts. And uh, I got introduced to him by a guy called James Corsellis, who, again, to this day, are great friends of mine. And, you know, they had a real vision for, for creating uh, something, I think, quite special in the investment world. And they were really understanding, you know, for me to go off and spend as much time as I wanted to do to, to try and think about what I wanted to do in India. Fantastic. Uh, and I, my mum's best friend, a lady called uh, Manju, Manju Shah, uh, who I should just call my aunt, she, you know, she's, uh, again, an ex-head teacher, uh, you know, a tough Indian auntie. So, you know, almost a stereotypical auntie that most of us have probably got, you know, tough, <laughs> kind, knowledgeable, takes no nonsense from you, you know, clip around the ear if, uh, if you say something that you shouldn't say. Yeah. And I said to her, look, um, you know, being slightly young, pompous and, and cocky, you know, having only had a couple of jobs, but one or two big titles, I said, oh, you know, I really want to do something in education in India. And it, I remember her saying to me, you know, absolutely nothing about this country, mm. you know, nothing about this country, about these people. And indeed, you don't know anything about education. She said, if you're serious, why don't I will arrange for you to go and spend a bit of time with some people running some very tough organizations um, in, in an area of India called Dharavi, um, which actually is where I think a lot of Slumdog Millionaire was filmed. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's you know, the shanty towns, very, very tough lives for people in there. Um, and I spent some time with a lady running a hospice. I spent some time with a lady running uh, an organization that supported um, women who were having a seriously difficult time. Uh, and I still came out of that thinking, no, I want to do something in education. I sort of combined that with my dad telling me, you haven't been up to the rural areas. You don't know how challenging lives, livelihoods are for people up there. So I went up there yeah. with my aunt, who at that point I think was 75, had more energy then and now than I've ever had. Um, and we traveled around the rural areas and, you know, I've worked with lots and lots of founders and whenever I meet and work with founders, you always say, well, look, you know, you need to think about the data. You need to think about the analysis. What's the demand? Um, I, I just, I didn't do all that despite my background. <laughs> I just thought, no, no, no. I've got, I've got, I've sort of got that, I don't know, entrepreneur's disease yeah. where I just jumped in and I came to the conclusion that what was needed was a mobile education program uh, in some of the rural villages where either schools were struggling to function well, or at that point in time, there was no access to a school. And certainly, I think, access to trained and experienced teaching staff mm. was really challenging. So as you do, Mark, I bought a bus and I converted it into a mobile school. Brilliant based on nothing, but this is what I think is needed. Now, what that did do is it, it taught me a lot about how to engage with communities on the ground. Uh, my aunt, my mum's best friend, Manju, helped me to recruit half a dozen teachers, um, kit out the bus, 
and we would travel from community to community. I think we had about five communities. Um, and what I learned really quickly was that it just wasn't enough. You can't turn up and say to 20 children, we're here on Monday, we'll be back the following Monday. You can't do it that way. Um, and, and so we moved very quickly from that to working with a local NGO. And it sounds like a big jump, but this is, this is one of the things, you know, moving from a mobile classroom to a, a small shelter that the community themselves would put up, but we would bring teachers in. Fantastic. Um, and what we would focus on was really teacher training, maths and literacy. And trying, at that point in time, it was how do we get these children from not being in a school back into a school? And how do we give them the skills they need to function in that school? So that's where it all that's where it all started for me back in 2002, 2003. And so the, the parents were, were up for it. They were up to, you know, they were going to support your efforts to educate their children. Well, I mean, the first few times I turned up in villages, I had, you know, you had to meet um, basically, uh, I suppose, the village, the village elder, the village leader uh, called the Sarpanj. And uh, I got told in no uncertain terms by quite a few of them uh look, uh, you're a Britisher. You know, we, there's a long colonial history here. We haven't got fond memories of it. And you're from that background. What are you doing here and why should we trust you? I mean, that was a bit of a shock to me, actually, because I thought, well, my name's Gandhi, Sanjay yeah. Gandhi, yeah. You know, Gandhi's come from Gujarat. Um, you know, I'm clearly of Indian heritage. Doesn't that, doesn't that do the trick? Mm. It really didn't. And I think what they had to, they had to be convinced on two fronts. One was I had to explain to everyone that my heritage was Indian, that my parents came from this area, just a few miles down the road, that I believed in the people here and wanted to try and help, but I needed their help and them to educate me on how to go about doing what I was doing. And they also wanted to see that I'd stick around. Yeah, I wasn't there for one month, three months, that uh, this wasn't a bit of, I think they'd seen it before. Mark, do you know what I mean by NGO tourism? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really common. I think, you know, raising expectations, it's a huge responsibility uh, to then, you know, deliver something that's meaningful and it's going to sustain. Yeah. And I, and, and I think it, initially it just took for them to see that I turned up sometimes for weeks at a time. Yeah. But certainly, I was there every month and I was there all the time and if there was a problem I would try and sit down with people and work it out and I think that that's when they began to think oh look he's gonna he, at least he's trying to stick this thing out um despite the giant bugs I'd always find in wherever I slept Mark. <laughs> well you know I was kind of asking you like what was going do you mind me asking what was going on in your personal life at the same time because you know you you had money um, you know, you had no shortage probably of um, people who wanted to hire you. Uh, what was sort of going on for you personally? We, you know, living in a rural part of Western India, were you so focused on your mission that it didn't, it didn't matter? I think the answer is probably yes. Um, you know, all my mates were telling me, Sanjay, what, what, what a great thing you're doing. What an adventure. And, you know, when I try and explain... Sometimes it does feel like an adventure. Actually, I must admit it did. It, even when I 
was, you know, crammed in the back of a British Midland flight at two o'clock in the morning coming back, I still thought this is absolutely brilliant. Um, and, you know, people were, people who I was working with, like at Marwin, were really tolerant of that. Um, girlfriends were really tolerant of that. And, but I, I was just, yeah, it was very, it was very much what I wanted to do. That's, that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And, and I wasn't looking, you know, I wasn't looking forward at that point to, was I going to get married? Was I going to have children? Um, what did my future career mean? Uh, was what I was doing, you know, the right, the right thing to do at this point in my career? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, you and I earlier were talking about a, a mutual friend, Jonathan, where he's, he's just started something up again. And I think that was the beginning of me doing that, trying to do that repeatedly mm. and therefore asking for a huge amount of patience, you know, particularly from my wife, who is long suffering and hugely patient of me trying new things all the time. So it was the beginning of that kind of way of life for me, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And so how how do you have it quickly um took hold and it became less of a temporary or mobile education bus uh, and into something more permanent and you, you were sticking around and, and you know local leaders were loving that um h- how did that first sort of trickle of funding come how did the sort of um you evolved out of an NGO partnership with an NGO what what was that sort of early structure look like of the of the charity of Reach to Teach so I you know I, I put all my own money into it uh, in the first few years, and we grew from those, I think, four or five centres to uh, over twenty quite quickly. And at around that time, um, I I just got introduced by email to you know, Larry Ellison. Mm. Um, you know, and that sounds like a bizarre kind of just got introduced. Founder of Oracle. But, uh, yeah, founder of Oracle, and uh, I met him uh, and started a conversation with him about what I was doing. Now, you know, at that time as well, um, I continued to grow the number of centres I had. Uh, I started working. One of the one of the, one of the key partnerships for us was with an organisation called Basha, which was a tribal development uh, NGO based out of Gujarat. They've been founded by this really tough guy called Ganesh Devi. In some ways, quite a sort of controversial figure, not because he was controversial, because I think he was doing controversial things, just because he was very vocal about tribal people's rights. He was a very well-known academic um, and, you know, a, a really tough guy. And he created this organisation that I partnered with to try and help grow Reach to Teach. One, one of the things I was really aware of was what I didn't want to do was turn up to one of my learning centres and just find it wasn't there, mm. you know, yeah. find out that I was putting money into something that wasn't there. So one, I used to make sure that I visited every single one of those centers, but also because Nepasha was a very trustworthy organization, they were working with me on the logistics. And so, you know, if something was going wrong, if there was a feeling that people weren't happy, you know, they were the eyes and ears on the ground. So, yeah. but in around, I think it was around 2006, I got introduced to Larry uh, and he, you know, he's, he's, if he takes an interest in something, he, he loves startups, he loves something that's different, he likes something that's challenging. And I think, I don't know, this just seemed to spark an interest in him. 
And that was the beginning of, you know, at least during my time we teach, you know, at least a 10 year interest from Larry. Yeah. And he, and I really want to, I really want to get into that just, just quickly before we do it, before we leave that early phases, did I often find it's the case with um, founders who start charities in another country is it's all about trust. So finding those, you know, those NGO partners or those people on the ground who you trust. Did, did you have scenarios where you were um, ripped off? You know, did you have any bad, bad situations, challenging times in, in that early bit? Or, you, you, you know, through Bashra, you managed to find a trusted partner? Do you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the people, I think, who uh, didn't behave with integrity uh, or didn't behave... Uh, in a way that you would hope organisations would behave, were those organisations that were supposed to be professional organisations. So, in particular, one consulting firm that's you know got quite a good brand, um, you know, they were clearly just trying to develop their brand, get more and more non-Indian based clients, you know, relatively wealthy clients who wanted to start up not-for-profit activities in India. The the organisations that I think we worked with on the ground. They were not not challenging to work with, because but they behaved with integrity. So the, the big thing with those organisations and people was learning learning to see things from their point of view. That I found really hard because you you come with a mindset, don't mm, you? Yeah. Yeah. particularly from where I'd come from. You know, I've been a strategy consultant at Coopers and Lybrand. I've done corporate finance. I've been at BBC Worldwide as, a, as head of strategy. I've been director of strategy at Europe. You know, hey, what didn't I know about strategy? Well, pretty yeah. much everything, really. Quite, quite a lot, yeah. Quite a lot, you know. And, and you they, you'd often find that organisations and people on the ground would have a viewpoint now that viewpoint would almost immediately trigger some kind of warning antenna in you. But that warning antenna a lot of the time was based on the approaches and the risk averse sort of training that you get in being in a corporate world. Now I'm not saying taking risk by doing anything that could be you know, in any way fraudulent or extravagant. No. You know, I, I really good people who, you know, we, we literally, you know, we were we were tough on budgets. I would go, I would receive literally every week, every single receipt and invoice for every penny spent. Yeah, yeah. And I would go through that with, again, an old mate of mine who was uh, a finance director at a company called Flextech Television that we worked with at the BBC, a guy called Carl Fondusa. He would go through every single invoice with me. And we would reconcile those. I, I hand on my heart say I don't believe more than five quid ever went missing. Probably wow. people rolling their eyes when they listen to this. And I'm, I'm exaggerating <laughs> slightly to make the point, but yeah. you know, I, I don't believe any significant amount went missing. Really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think, I think you know, when you've got donated money, uh, or certainly when it's your own money, because it was your own. Uh, you're going to watch that pretty pretty carefully. Um, but, you know, yeah. listening to your story, it strikes me, you you were the ultimate social entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurs strike me as people who are willing to reach for the stars but potentially fail. And I, and I think that's where, for me, charity needs to go a bit more. Um, you know, be 
be okay with sometimes charities failing or NGOs failing because if they fail they've actually probably tried to do something quite meaningful uh, and that and that's certainly what you were doing I think that's right Mark and I think you know if you if you're lucky you will attract people with the same mindset you know um, again my my wife Ruth who's an ex-deputy head teacher when she came out she said oh, this is this is this is great what you're doing she said you, you know literally nothing about education do you because you know, some of these centres, it's okay, but, you know, you really need to think hard about how you, what you're doing. And she introduced me to, at, at that time, the head teacher of her school, a guy called John Towers. And he was the head teacher of Bevington Primary School in Notting Hill. Community school, uh, lots of children from tough backgrounds. That's where my wife was working. Mm. Um, yeah. John, uh, you know, to this day, I think is utterly inspirational character. But also, in my view, slightly insane. Because why would you leave... Uh, a senior headship where he was earning a substantial amount of money that he had turned around to earn very little working for me in a charity with only three people. But that's what he did. He said, he just emailed me one day and said, Sanj, I, I want to come and do this with you. And yeah. he then spent the next five, six, seven years helping me build that up. You know, mm, fantastic. same time, um, one of the, the ex-partners of Marwin, a guy called Andrew Mitchell, uh, who not not the ex uh, uh, Secretary of State in the UK, but uh, and Andrew, you know, currently runs investment funds up in the northeast of England. Um, but Andrew is he, he's a tough guy. You know, he comes from an investment banking and strategy consulting background, but he also comes from a background of working in politics at, in the UK at a councillor level. So he is happy to roll his sleeves up and try and fix some hard problems. And literally month after month, Andrew would come out with me as well. And when we, on a couple of occasions, had almost a very big row with our, one of our NGO partners because there was a serious misunderstanding. We thought they were asking us for money for something they shouldn't have been. Mm. Uh, they thought they were simply asking for a contribution for something that, that, that they needed to run their organisation. It sounds like a really right. simple misunderstanding, but... Yeah, you know these things get blown out of proportion when you're dealing with systems and ways of thinking that you know that haven't been yours. Uh, so Andrew came with me, spent days out there trying to help sort out the problem, and we walked away with a solution. And it was right. all these guys: John Towers, Andrew Mitchell. One thing they taught me, and even to this day, because I continue to work with them both, is um, try not to say die on stuff see it through right even if it's painful mm -hmm. and then you come out the yeah. other end and it it just feels great that you you went through that awful time uh, yeah and you've you've got something now that so what you need to do i think is always surround yourself with people who are going to help keep you tough and honest do the right thing but also stand up with you when difficult things have to be said yeah and it, i was just sitting here thinking exactly that so you what you seem expert in is is not only strategy but actually is you know, surrounding yourself with amazing people. Um, and, you know, Lawrence Ellison or Larry Ellison, uh, uh, you know, a person that was, seems ideal fit for, uh, in terms of helping with funding, I, I guess that's what his mission was. He, um, he, I think from what I've read, he has a, a real deep belief in leadership as an important part of education. Um, in my kind of research before the podcast unearthed that he, you and him did a deal, was it, for um, full funding in 2014 for four years? Was that the initial, which is an incredible deal, if that's, if I got that right. 
Um, well, actually, it, it went back to 2008, because in 2008, Larry said, look, I'd, I'd really like to help you grow this substantially. Um, and I said, I, you know, it was interesting. It was one of those, it was a slightly bizarre moment, really, because when I looked at his email, I thought, if I say yes to this, one, I can't say yes to this without committing to this for a very long time, because it could be a serious amount of money. He's putting a lot of trust in me and what we're trying to do. So I have to make a big decision here. Do I not go down the path of, you know, being involved in an investment fund? Do I not go down the path of, to some extent, continuing working in the tech sector? And do I have to then commit myself to spending months, years, India in these places? But it was just, you know, how could you say no when someone like Larry Ellison says, uh, oh, hey, I'm interested in what you're doing. You can't then say, well, do you know what, Mr. Ellison, do you know what, Larry? Oh, you know, I think I'm I'll pass the stuff. Pass One thing I struck me when I was, because I, I sort of looked back at some old accounts and I thought, and it just resonated for me that you were talking about getting away from the corporate or the Yahoo world for you was around getting some independence. But by doing a deal with, uh, you know, with, with Larry Allison or with his foundation, did that invite a boss into your world or, or was that not how it was? No, it didn't. Um, so uh, Larry, the, the two chief executives of, of Larry's foundation who I knew well, one was a guy called Dick Sprott. Um, he was the first one. And Dick, an amazing guy. You know, Dick was uh, a very, very prominent scientist in the U.S. He, as I'm, I mean, he, he'd done everything. Dick had been a mayor of, of small towns in America. He also had been the guy who I think, as I understand it, when, was it Buzz Aldrin was going up in one of the space shuttles? NASA called Dick to say, is Buzz Aldrin fit enough to go up? So Dick had done everything. <laughs> that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah tough guy. Um and, you know, the few times I went out to see him in the States, uh, you know, he, he would he would trot out the best red wine that, that, that was in his cellar. So, you know, Dick didn't hold back. But he was, Dick himself, I think, was an entrepreneur. And he, he would visit us in India regularly. Um, he was an amazing photographer and, a, and, a, and a, an amazing expert on birds. So he would spot stuff that I'd just never seen. You know, you'd see things sitting in a tree that were 10 feet away that you'd never mm. have seen before wandering around rural India with Dick. But what Dick did was, on the one hand, give me a lot of freedom to try and develop the operation, to try and develop the product, to make sure, try and develop the impact, patience with local communities. He's a patient guy, Dick. Um, but on the other hand, what I didn't do was for many years, I just really didn't use the money or not very right. much of it. So I'm not saying mm. use the money. I didn't use as much of it that was available because I just felt you've got to do it properly. And I think having the money gives you an awful lot of freedom. Obviously, it does. It, it also gave me the freedom to find people to help me run this thing like John Towers, who I would never have found otherwise. Yeah, But yeah. it doesn't help you create the relationships on the ground it doesn't help you find those amazing teachers it, it doesn't help you find the the local rural managers who will help you run things on the ground in india that just no because i think time. money can yeah can spoil uh spoil mission for me sometimes because you know money 
believe it or not, you can overfund a mission <laughs> and then you start doing silly things or, you know, you start being clouded by, by money. Um, and, and so I think that kind of resonance is, was good. Um, it, did you, did, the other guy I had down actually was, is it Matthew Simons? Was he the other longstanding contact? Yeah, I mean, Matthew, uh, Matthew introduced me to uh, Larry. So they'd known each other for many years. Um, Matthew, I worked with Matthew at the BBC. And then Matthew wrote a biography of Larry Ellison called Soft War. So, and then Matthew became uh, a trustee at Reach to Teach um, and was, you know, has been with the charity ever since. Mm. Fantastic. And he's been on, on the board, on, on your board, co-opted onto... Uh, reached the teach board and still is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I, yeah. I, I stepped down in 2017. Um, you know, it had, it, it had grown to, to you know, we, we were in 200 schools by that point. And, you know, I, I got asked by someone a little while ago, um, was I scared of growth when I got to 200 schools? Did I not want it to grow further? I think for me, I know it sounds... I, I feel that for every founder, it's very personal where something gets to. I know a lot of founders find it very difficult to step away, mm. but I think it's very personal. What did you want to achieve when you set out? How did you feel about that? And where are you at the point where you've got to make a decision? I've done what I wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, and then is the future something that was it does the future still to some extent look like some of the things that excited you when you founded it uh and for me reach to teach was then on a path to serious scale one of the things you'd think right i've got so much flexibility i should have time to do these things but i mean part of the the wonderful thing about my life is i'm a bit of a late starter so i've got a seven-year-old daughter a four-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son um and I'm, I'm only just finding out how tiring that is. Although if Ruth, my wife, listens to this, she'll be thinking, you don't do anything. Um, so, you know, my, my I know that feeling. And what would they be? I, I would, uh, a great friend of mine has come up with an idea for starting an NGO. Uh, you know, he, he's an experienced board member. He, uh, he would like to, and he doesn't come from this background, he would like to start an NGO that looks at how you identify and train promising members from minority groups, minority ethnicity groups, and get them onto boards, because that's something that's, you know, that's been identified as something that needs to happen, certainly here in the UK. And he wants to look at that. He wants to look at how you perhaps make boards and chairs aware of the value of that and how yeah. you begin to prepare boards and chairs to, to, to prepare to perhaps, you know, like the England cricket team, you need to take some risks to win the Ashes. Yeah. Um, despite despite some criticism, you know. So, what do we need? To, what do those boards need to do to 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 diversify? Um, so, so you know, work wise, I'd love to do that. I'd love to get the U, my UK schools idea up and running. On a personal level, you know, I'm I'm a non-exec uh, at the ECB on the hundred board. Again, controversial. A lot of people don't like the hundred, um, but I think it's an amazing thing. So. You know, I, I would have loved to spend this this summer playing a lot of cricket, but obviously COVID. Yeah. For that COVID got in the way. COVID got in the way. I've just had one net session, uh, and that's it. Ah, so nothing. Know, absolutely, 
absolutely. And, I, and what's worse about about this is, uh, if I'm going to get a dig at the ECB here, I thought, look, at least at least I'll get to go and watch some closed session cricket matches. No tickets. Mark, no right. Tickets. I've seen yeah. no, no, <laughs> I've seen no cricket, Mark. So I've not I've not, I haven't watched any cricket and I haven't played any cricket. Ah, uh, and are you a bowler or a batsman? Well, I mean, most people say neither. Um, I like to think I'm a batsman, Mark. But um, yeah, highest score. My my highest score in recent years was fifteen, playing for a side up in Buckinghamshire last summer, um, and uh, it was an old mate of mine called Ed Shed. Uh, and, but he didn't. What he didn't tell me is that these guys sort of play in the Premiership up there. So I, I, I turned up, and you know, people were hitting balls at. I don't know what kind of speed, but at flat trajectories right out to the boundary. But these guys were so graceful that, you know, once they put me at square leg, this giant Pakistani guy hammered the ball at me. I put up my hands in fear. My hand, <laughs> the ball bounced off my hands. I thought I'd broken my hands. And people didn't say, you absolute goon, you could have caught that. People clapped and said, what an amazing stop, Sanjeev. <laughs> that is what cricket should be about. Um, so, and I, I still want to learn some jazz piano. My, my wife hates jazz, but I love jazz, and I want to learn jazz piano. But I, I, I haven't had time to start that. But I'm, I'm going to start no. this month. So it's, it's Pip, it's Pippa yeah. Pig. Yeah, for the time being. And to, you know, looking ahead to clothing, and and uh, really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, big thank you for that. But what would you um, say to you know someone who was starting down this journey, who was going to choose? a for-purpose career, and um, what would your advice be to them? I'd say, firstly, don't choose the for-purpose career. Um, get the entrepreneur's disease to some extent, because if you think of it, I think, as a long-term career, you, instead of following something that you believe in to begin with, you know, I think you start to do things that won't contribute to you being entrepreneurial. So I think partly it's it's get the entrepreneur's disease and try what you believe in. Secondly, I think it's surround yourself, if you can, with people who won't be self-interested, that will really put themselves out to help you, whose advice, for better or for worse, you will accept and listen to, even if it's even if you feel it's not in your interest, so you know to this day Andrew Mitchell continues to give me advice on things. I, I take it and do it, but it causes me a lot of pain a lot of the time. <laughs> but, I, 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 but you know he's right. Um, so surround yourself with those people who you think will really help, will really try and put themselves out for you, um, and whose experience you trust. I think. I think it's also personally a, you know, I don't know, is it right or wrong? It didn't. It wouldn't have worked for me. I think if I had thought back in two thousand and three, uh, reteach is going to be massive, and I, I think what that does is it that that's that's about your ego then, as yeah. opposed to something that you will look back and think. At least I think I achieved something good out of that. I think someone benefited from something that I tried. Uh, yeah. And along the way, met amazing people, and yeah, I just had a fantastic adventure trying to do what what I did. Yeah, I think if you can focus on that, 
then I think good things come of that. But if you focus yeah. on, you know, becoming the, the you know, the, the Bill Gates, you know, the Gates, if you focus on becoming that, I think that doesn't necessarily lead you to where you need to get to. It might lead you to a lot of cocktail parties and a lot of presence on social media, but I don't think that's ultimately satisfying. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a really good place to leave it. listening to purposely podcast i hope you like what you're hearing please subscribe and leave a review